We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings, happy Friday. Welcome to the Steve Dace Show here, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. You can like us on Coming up later in Hour 2, we'll have the Dace Group Roundtable. That means uh, Kim is here with us. we got a packed house. Um, we have finally certified, everybody, the uh, 26... 26- Tell me what you think those final numbers mean. I'll start with you, Aaron. Who the hell is Spotted Eagle? That's that's the first thing, but I, I think at least for the electoral college, that tells me that it's basically, uh, for the most part, this is opposite of what I think a lot of more level-handed uh, pundits were trying to or what were thinking about was actually going to happen with this election. I know there were people like the I think it was the Huff, Huffington Post that gave Hillary Clinton a, a blowout victory, and there are a number of those. But I think more of the level-headed that uh, didn't want to uh, make those bold p- predictions. I think they basically had this, but the other way around. Kim, what do those numbers mean to you? Well, first I want to ask you, how common is it to have rogue electors? Not right. common. Right? Not common. So I think that's kind of a story in this as well. I, I would guess, without having researched it, um, I would guess if we did, 
you would have more rogue electors than we have had in, in this election than we've had in recent memory. Right. So uh, to me, that's a story that there would be that many people willing to risk that type of political fallout for being a rogue um, elector, which I'm all for it. Go for it. Um, the other thing is I look at that and I also like the tie in to how many counties that Donald Trump actually won compared to how many counties that Hillary Clinton yeah, won. Hillary Clinton won fewer than 15 percent of the counties. In the exactly. United States. So I think that's very fascinating that this was widespread. Todd, those numbers mean what to you? They cover up the real story that Hillary Clinton got 7 million fewer votes than Barack Obama. And as you pointed out several weeks ago, I think it won't be quite that many, but it will be millions fewer. And you pointed out and I think at the lead of the show one day because you thought it was so important that the amount of votes that Jill Stein got in places like Wisconsin was the margin of victory in those states. That's the real story, not this. So a couple of the anecdotes that Todd's referring to. In uh, in Michigan, over 100,000 people voted but did not vote for president. They left that part of their ballot blank. Uh, almost as many, uh, something like 10,000 people did that in Maine. In Wisconsin, in Milwaukee, 40,000 people in Milwaukee City that voted in the 2012 election did not vote in 2016. Those are... Just a few of the uh, anecdotes that, that, that Todd is referring to. Those numbers tell you guys what? I, I think he's right. Um, that this, I think who didn't vote was the bigger st- story than who got the most votes at this point. And it tells you that uh, the electorates, they were, A, they were probably ready for change, but at the same time, um, they didn't like the options that they had presented to them. So, okay, we're going to go third party or we're not going to vote at all. That's, that's, I think that's, we, we knew that already, but I think that just bears out even more in these numbers. Well, and when you're talking Milwaukee, I assume the, those 40,000 that you're talking about were mostly Democrats. And so I would look at that and see that Hillary Clinton depressed her own base. Mm-hmm. Is there another story here? Uh, and that is that the fact we had rogue electors at all, doesn't that reinforce that we have had within with, with within the scheme of our governance, we have had the means all along to reject or say no to flawed binary choices, to say no to pick you know uh, you know pick pick one pile of of poop or, or in in this situation or another pile of poop in this situation that our founders were prescient in in, in their understanding of human nature. That, that human nature would often not seek our, our better angels, but would do the exact opposite. And therefore, they left safeguards within the system that allowed people to say, I don't care what the whim is right now. This is wrong. This is wicked. This is evil. We're not going to do this. And that's one of the reasons why we have devices like the Electoral College in the first place. That, that this whole notion that we've all adopted for the last few decades, that like whatever a judge says and orders we have to do, that's not true. Uh, that we don't live in a democracy, that we do live in a representative republic. And that does come with it checks and balances and means by which that when the public gets it wrong, because the people aren't any more righteous than their leaders. In fact, if, you're, if you don't like who our leaders are, who selected them? And, you know, in our form of government, the people have a, a pretty large say in that equation, right? So they're a reflection of us. 
So, so therefore, um, that's why these sorts of devices exist. They've always been out there. We've always had the power within us to say, no, you aren't going by fiat to impose these sorts of things on me. But as I pointed out for years, we are not a nation of laws. We are a nation of political will. We have just not had the will to utilize these these devices, Kim. That's right. The checks and balances go unused. And you're right. It's always been in there. I mean, you don't get to over $20 trillion worth of debt using your checks and balances. I mean, you you, you don't have anybody reining that in. I mean... So, Todd? Yeah, I think the real question concerning that is whether people anytime soon in our lifetime will know or care about those checks and balances. We, we like to be taken care of way too much. We are not autonomous individuals. We like to put it on autopilot and say, hey, smart guy, you, you know, go do this because I've got a golf game to play or, you know, whatever I'm doing. And that's not good enough. There's no way a, consti- a, a, a free people a genuinely free people can live on autopilot indefinitely. Yeah, and I think that's, if you're looking for the other story here, that's the other story. The other story here is that we've got bigger problems than whatever's going on politically right now. The fact that it took us this long to accidentally stumble into realizing that we didn't have to fall for these binary choices, that suggests to me, again, that we just like being lied to. We just like going along, and we just like putting things on autopilot. If you're looking for the other story here, the fact that it took us this long to actually realize that there's, um, you know, there's there's a, a different way to go about this. There's another way you can reject these binary choices. That's the other story. Well, and that's why you're we're a nation of will, not a nation of laws. I, I mean, you can have all the laws, you can have all the stipulations. This is something, this is something that that the founding fathers could not have. Have, have devised a way to work around because to do so would have run contrary to self-government in the first place. But ultimately, if, if you as a people just want to roll over and play dead, uh, if, if you as a people, your, your highest law is complacency, uh, your highest value is I don't want to have to, um, you know, thinking is hard. Uh, if, if that's what becomes, if, if you just, if you become flaccid as a society, then, then there is no device capable of, of, of undoing that, that aspect of human nature once it becomes ingrained in a culture because it's, it's anathema to self-government. If you're, to, to, be, to, to govern yourself requires engagement, requires discipline requires denial of things you may want at the time, right? I mean, it, re- it requires you to be an adjusted adult. If you don't want to be one or if you live in an era where we're just we're, we're not we're, we're not discipling them and, and, and raising up, a, a, you know, well-adjusted adults, then there is, it doesn't matter what the words in the Constitution are. It, it doesn't matter if the it doesn't matter if the Constitution is reduced to the exact wording of uh, the Ten Commandments and what Paul writes about government in Romans 13. It doesn't matter. People will just say, I don't want to have to. That's exactly I, I'll just right. ignore it. And that's why we're not a nation of laws. Kim, we're a nation of political will. And I was just reading um, this uh, Indian chief who said, welcome to the reservation. That's what you are now. You're allowing yourself to have all the decisions made for you. Ouch. Your liberties are going away. Welcome to our life. Yeah, and I think this uh, goes and it's, it lends itself um, to what's been said many, many times and on this show before. Um, originally, th- th- this this system of government was made for moral and religious people. Only the the Constitution is only going to be relevant for moral and religious people. And I think that lends it lends to what you're saying. It's like when a judge says to a state, "Well, I'm going to rule that you can't defund Obamacare." 
we appreciate that. Tell me how you would enforce your ruling. Well, Steve, what do you mean? Well, well, do you think the people that wrote the Constitution knew what they were doing? Yes? Okay. Well, if they intended then for a judge to have this kind of power, would they have not handed him inherently then the ability to enforce it? You know your Andrew Jackson right there. Yeah, I mean, that would, you would, you would, if they intended for you to have this, they would have given you the means to enforce it. Right? If they, if they, I mean, if, if they intended a president to be able to, uh, to coin currency, guess what power they would have given him? That. He doesn't have that power. Congress does. So that's the point of the Constitution. You can always tell what the founders intended each office to do, not by the words that they wrote, but by the power that they gave. Right? Power is where power goes. That's one of Lyndon Johnson's classic lines, and he's exactly right about that. Yeah, so if, if this was to be the intended use of the judiciary, Steve, people ask me all the time, well, then, Steve, you say it can't do this, and what was it? You, exactly what, what power did the Constitution give it? And that's its intended use. Nothing more, nothing less. If you don't have the means within your own realm to enforce or impose your opinions or your edicts, then what you're doing is outside the realm of our Constitution. And it's just a matter of whether the people under that Constitution are willing to stand up or not. And most of the time, we're not. You're listening to Steve Dace. Time to fight is now, always, The Steve Day Show. All right, back here on The Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So the argument about uh, defunding Planned Parenthood is underway, uh, mainly because of some comments that uh, Speaker Paul Ryan made yesterday that they're going to fully defund Planned Parenthood as part of their Obamacare repeal. Now, Make sure you keep an eye on them about this. You know, I think we've all learned in Washington that uh, their definition of fully defund or even the word repeal is not necessarily the definition that we all have in every aspect of our normal and daily lives. But that's a that's not the topic I want to get into now. We'll have plenty of time to debate that once the legislative process uh, kicks itself into high gear. What I want to talk about here for the next few minutes is it's it, it some of the reactions I have gotten from pro from pro Planned Parenthood people say that ten times fast from uh, pro Planned Parenthood people on social media when I have advocated their defunding and and I want to bring these up to you not for scorn or mockery uh, but for analysis. You know, one of the things we, we strive to do on our show is what I call three-dimensional thinking. Know why you believe what you believe. Know why other people believe what they believe. And then know why other people believe what they believe about what you believe. Because ultimately, we want to persuade. We, we're trying to, we, we live in an era, we're not a silent majority anymore. We need to create converts. So we need to persuade. Really hard to persuade, though, if you don't know where the persuadee is coming from. It's hard to be the persuader. And what I'm about to show you is also why we don't believe we can do this without the gospel. We, we don't believe we can do this show, what we're trying to accomplish with the show. We don't believe we can do what we would like to accomplish for conservatism. We don't think we can do any of those things without the gospel. Because what you're dealing with here are people beyond common sense. I'll give you an example. And, I, and I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm, this is not a judgment, but an observation. 
one individual tried to convince me that um, we should keep funding Planned Parenthood because only 5% of the services they offer are abortion. Now, now let's, let's grant his point, which I would not in any other context because it's not valid. All right, Killing is their overwhelming number one revenue generator. It's not even close, guys. Not even close. But, but let's stick with this point for just a moment. Let, let's say he, let, let's grant his point that that's accurate. If Jiffy Lou brand ads that said only 5% of our business is selling and dispensing kitty porn, and the other 95% has to do with changing your oil and making sure that your car's maintenances are up to date. Would anybody in their right mind, Republican, Democrat, I mean anybody, forget their ideology, where they go to church, right? If they even have stepped foot in a church in their lives, would anyone in their right mind, would would 97% of this population say, well, that sounds like a great deal. I'm going to get my oil changed at Jiffy Lube. No, they would not. They would not. We didn't have to see if they're Republican, Democrat, male, female, Christian, atheist, 97% of human beings. And it might even be higher. I'm just, you know, whoever's, whoever's in, a, in, a, in a right state of mind, would bec- their God-given conscience, re- whether they recognize that it came from God or not, just their functioning capability as a human being would look at that and they would say, that is just, there's no, there's no, there's no small enough percentage to get me to knowingly give money to something like that. No. I'll, I'll go someplace else where they don't give 5% of their revenue. 5% of their business is dispensing and selling kitty porn. Now, some of you are going to object to my analogy because you're going to say, but Steve, selling kitty porn is illegal. And you're going to make my point for me when you do this. What if it wasn't? Would it be okay? Is selling kitty porn wrong because it's illegal? Or is it illegal because it is wrong? Which is it? See, the, if, if your immediate reaction to my analogy is, Steve, that's a flawed premise, as you like to say, because selling kitty porn is illegal, abortion is not, you just made my case for me. Because what you're telling me is your conscience is seared to the notion that any authority exists higher than what government says or a society says. I had one person say to me on Twitter yesterday, well, I live in Northwest Iowa and our Planned Parenthood doesn't even perform any abortions. That's like saying, hey guys, look, I found the, the one concentration, I live next door to the one concentration camp that didn't gas anybody. That's your defense? We don't kill anybody? I mean, they, I'm sure they, I know they kill all kinds of people at these other Planned Parenthoods, but the one by my house, they don't. How far gone do you have to be to even say these sorts of things out loud and to do so under your own name in a setting where somebody with thousands of Twitter followers could retweet you to a much larger audience than you have access to to display your ignorance? I had somebody say to me when discussing this, 
well, where will people go for birth control? Now, set aside the notion that, you know, you already have birth control within you. It's called restraint. Yeah, I mean, control yourself. Just simply say, I'm not going to have sex with somebody I'm not married to at the time. I'm controlled. Well, Steve, I can't. You can't? You, just, you, you act on every impulse. Everyone? So every time you get mad at somebody, you slug them. Every time you think I could kill you, you do. Every time you think somebody's hurt you, you say, I hate you. You, can't, you, you, just, you hate them forever. You just can't. You have no ability to control your impulses at all? None? Well, then you're a sociopath, and we should lock you away. Clearly, you have some ability to control your impulses. Clearly. You just choose not to control these. Now, in other eras, we did control these impulses. Why did we control them then and not control them now? Well, society says that acting on these impulses is okay now, but it didn't back then. So what society says about your impulses determines whether your impulses are good or bad. There's no authority higher than what society says at the time. That's a hell of a way to live. I know a lot of white Southerners 150, 200 years ago. Their society said, I have an impulse to own other humans. If that's your standard, then tell me how you could say they were wrong. Not to mention the fact there's literally nowhere else in America. We hand out condoms to school kids, man, like they're lollipops. There is nowhere else in America to get birth control other than a place where they kill people. Nowhere else. There's nowhere else where you can go. Nowhere. Nowhere else in America is birth control obtainable than where they kill people. See, see, that's an asinine argument. And it, again, this is another example. If, if this point was being made in another context, no one would dare out loud expose just how dumb they sound when they say these things. But because the conscience is seared, this sounds wise to them. And that's why we can't do this without God. Because it's going to require a power more greater than we have at our disposal to unsear consciences like this. You're listening to Steve Dace. The time to fight is now. Always the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's lighten things up just a little bit here. Mike Woody, taking us to the movies for the first time in 2017. Michael, Happy New Year to you. How are uh, you, my friend? The same to you. I'm, I'm well. Did you have a good holiday break? I did. It was very nice, very relaxing. And now we're back to work. I had a good one, but it wasn't as good as many of the others. And it's mainly because we, everybody in our house, the last of the two weeks, the second of the two weeks I was gone, Everybody got sick, oh. and we're still digging out from it. You know, so I'm at that Isn't stage. That crud that everybody's got. Yeah, everybody got that. I got some kind of food poisoning or stomach thing for like. There was about 12 hours. I literally just wanted to die. I mean, it was. Oh man! And yes, Sorry I am. To hear that. I am your typical guy that if you broke my arm, I'd say I ain't got time to bleed. And if my throat is sore, I want somebody to baby me. I am that guy. All right, <laughs> but but this but this wasn't that. This was, I'm in a fetal position for like 12 hours. I, I, death was preferable. Wow. I just, it was so bad. Um, it was, it was 
unrelenting. And then it was it was weird. I got up at four o'clock in the morning, and you were fine. And it was gone, totally gone. And then everybody got colds after this. And I'm at and I it's one of those colds where there's nothing to do now. You just have to let yeah. it run its course. So, yeah, Sue came home last night sick, and then I'm sitting on the couch watching the Iowa game, and she sits down to talk to me, and I'm like, "Why are you in the same room with me if you're sick? Go yes. away!" Yeah, and I've got my like sweatshirt up above my face. It's like, "Go away!" I'll see when I, you feel better. <laughs> so we got a lot. We got yes, a lot. I did. We, we got a lot to catch up on. All right, where should we begin? Oh, I think you want to begin with Star Wars. Come on, let's begin with Star Wars. We'll Rogue start One, the year with a good fight, which looks like it's going to end the year. Now it's it looks like it's going to catch Finding Dory and end up being the number one movie of 2016, which is okay. I mean, it's Finding a much Dory, better movie than Finding Dory. Oh, yes, it is. And Finding Dory was okay. It was good, but not for the number one picture of the year. So you've seen this twice. I I've seen it twice, yes. I saw it once. Okay. That's enough. It was all right. It was good. It was a good standalone. Absolutely no characters whatsoever. I couldn't uh, tell you one person's name in the entire film. Michael, 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 Michael. It saved the franchise. It did not save the franchise. Not from making money, but from actually having a Last compelling story that you care the about. Franchise. I don't. I, I. I didn't. I'm not saying I didn't like it. It just. I didn't love it. I love the movie. I. 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 I you were gonna love it when. I don't. I didn't love announced. the Force Awakens the first time I saw it. Remember? Really? I did I, not. See, I love the Force Awakens. I. I. I there, there's several holes still in the Force Awakens, and it's very clear as we've talked about before. The movie is just a replay of the original Star Wars. It's just this time the likable rogue is a black guy, uh, and not Han Solo. It's not, and it's not Luke Skywalker's a chick now, but it's the same story. All right, and Darth Vader is is it, it, you know. Kylo Ren is conflicted, which we find out later Darth Vader is in the ensuing movies, except this time he's an emo millennial who, you know, just can't get over himself. But it's it, other other than diversifying the cast, it's largely this, the, the Empire has this this first order as an overwhelming weapon that must be destroyed that has a secret weakness that can be exploited. I mean, we've seen this movie before. Now, maybe I, maybe that's why I liked it. Uh, well, if you listen, if it ain't broke, don't mm. fix it. Right. But I will say the more time once I got over acknowledging that the ensuing times I've seen it f- four or five times I think the, with every ensuing viewing I like the Force Awakens more. I still believe they made a major mistake in telling us too early that that was Han Solo's son and Princess Leia's son. We should have found that out in the climactic moment when he kills him. That's when we should have found out. Okay, and and he should have and that what should have been when he took his mask off. Not before, not before, because I, to me, Kylo Ren was a son of a gun, of a villain, until he took the mask off in front of Rey, and then he became just another emo millennial snowflake from that point forward, and, and grating. And the idea that the idea that that Finn's character, who didn't even want to use a blaster at the beginning of the movie, is going to pick up an idle lightsaber. And last more than three seconds yeah. with the guy that got trained by Luke Skywalker and the last remaining Lord of the Sith. Come on, man! It's not Come a perfect. It's not a perfect. Film. Nobody stopped and thought that's probably not going to happen. Okay. Come on. Okay, so let's go back to Rogue One. Rogue One. This, now I'm, I'm I'm bringing these things up because I want you to see Todd's perspective. Rogue One, I do think fixed a lot of these things. 
It just because it was as much realism as you can find in escapism. It's gritty. They answered in a 40 year old plot point, which is why did the Empire put a weakness into their super weapon? We now know the answer to that. Yep. All right. Um, It does have a couple of problems, but it has something we'll talk about when we come back. It has what may be the greatest single scene in Star Wars history. We'll debate that next. Listening to Steve Dace. How about we try that whole life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness thing again? Hmm. This is Steve Dace. All right, back here with Mike Woody taking us to the movies here on the Steve Day Show. I think Rogue One gets off to a bit of a sluggish start, but I, I understand you got to introduce a bunch of characters that nobody knows that aren't going to survive the movie, right? From the time that they land on Jeddah, I think the movie begins to progressively get better. And the final 20 minutes, I think, are masterful, including what, for my money, is the greatest single scene in Star Wars history. And that is to finally, you know, when when you, me, and Todd and Kim were growing up, we didn't have the special effects that they have today. Correct. So the idea of Vader's presence alone, the breathing, the the get up right, the the intimidating voice, was enough for us back in the day. But then after the prequels come out, you're watching 85 year old Christopher Lee do backflips and all this <laughs> stuff, right? You kind of start thinking to yourself, why was this Darth Vader guy really that intimidating, right? For the first time, we really get a chance to see what he brings to the table. Why even the Emperor was afraid of this cat. And it's about 90 seconds of cinematic perfection. When he comes, <laughs> the way the music starts up, how he comes out of the smoke, it is so ruthlessly utilitarian. Like he's not just doing these things for effect. Right? There's no wasted motion whatsoever. It is simply, you're in my way, I will remove you by any means necessary. No wasted motion at all. The terror, you can sense the terror on the faces of the, of, of the rebel soldiers. They're like, hey, they told us these people weren't real. This was all imaginary, right? And, to, and I mean, it is, it is, even now thinking about it, the hair in the back of my neck stands <laughs> up. It is just an incredible scene mike it's the best scene i think in any star wars movie ever and then the way they roll that right into how uh, episode four opens a new hope with the young princess leia and cgi yep flawless i i will grant you that the movie ends very well and it forced me to go back and see the original it's still the original and see how seamlessly yes. those two fit together and it is really really well done and here's what I've decided. This movie was made specifically to cater to people like you that are geeks about Star Wars. There's Easter eggs. There's all kinds of hidden things in here that you could watch it over and over, and you're going to get different stuff out of it. I kind of like to go to a movie and have a nice story told to me, and then I like to leave. This is a great story. Just great. So much better than Force Awakens. It's not even comparable. So how many mushroom clouds, Mike? Uh, you know, I'll give it three and a half. I would give it four. 
at least. Well, at then least. we're not that far apart. We're not. No, Todd. Five is max. Yeah. Oh, it's at least five mushroom. He's going to give max. it six. No, it's a four and a half. It's a four and a half. Wow. I. You know what? I. I. I'm glad you guys liked it. All right. So what's next? Uh, let's go with Collateral Beauty, which is the Will Smith movie. Will Smith is trying his darndest to make a modern, it's a wonderful life type of thing. And and once again, he is, you know, and he did it before in The Pursuit of Happiness, which was a great film. This movie, something happens and it just doesn't come off well. He's he's a grieving father. He's He owns an ad agency. The other three people that are with him decide to trick him out of the ad agency maybe get him back to his real life and i don't know it it started well it's got a great cast but it just this movie's like at nine or ten percent on rotten tomatoes how is it possible with this cast and this storyline that this was and, and the time of year they released it it was not a major hit how it's, is that possible it is better than that it's just not I think when you go into a Will Smith movie like this and you've got Helen Mirren, you've got, you know, Kira Knightley, you've got all of this great talent and the expectations are so high that I I don't know if it could have lived up to it, but it certainly doesn't. It just I walked out and I thought, oh, that could have been really good. So I give him credit for trying, but it just it didn't work. How many mushroom clouds? Two and a half. Yeah. See, I, I think you got to go lower. It's just oh, okay. if you if, but no, if you the time of year. The cast, the story they're trying to tell. You know what I'm saying? There's a handicap there. It's a little bit like, you know, it's one thing. It's one thing in February if, if, if um, you know, a pro golfer shoots a 15 under at, Peb- at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, right? And then we go back five months later and it's the U.S. Open. Yeah. And they move the, the pin placement and everything around. And you do a 12 under then, that's a little bit different than the 12 under in February. You know what I'm trying to say? Okay. You know what? Maybe so, they should have held this movie till February. So, so when, but my point is when you've got everything going for it on the surface that this one does and you can't deliver with this much raw material, right. to me, you get downgraded for that. But maybe it just got lost at the holidays. But it's the quintessential, it's the, it's, it's the kind of movie people go to the, go to see at the holidays. I would think so. All right. What's but next? But they didn't. By but the they way. did, which, which I think speaks volumes. All right. Let's go with Sing. I think you've saw, you I have saw seen Sing. Sing, thought it's, it's predictable. But it's adorable in, in in getting to its predictable ending. It is just so much fun. The, yeah. And I sat there thinking, okay, I'm watching cartoons, and there are more distinct characters in this animated film than there are in the majority of films I see with live action. Yeah, I mean, there's humans. an archetype for, you know, there's the overlooked stay-at-home mom, right? There's the, right. <laughs> the there's the kid who can't follow in his dad's footsteps. There, there's every archetype that you've ever seen in a movie like right. this is all in one film. But it's just, I mean, I, I can't imagine who you couldn't take to this film. You could take your mom. You could take your grandma. You could take your youngest child. It's got a it's cross-generational a soundtrack. Your, you know, today's kids will like some of the songs. Our age will like some of the music. Yeah. Now, don't, Todd, your family saw this. Your wife and daughters. Don't did, take did my wife. My All four of my daughters are like, yeah, and my wife hated it. She said the character, you know, some a son was a son of a gang member or something. They just, she thought they were trying to make it too gritty and forgot it was a fun cartoon. But you guys obviously had a good time. Um, we all liked it to varying degrees, except for the son. My nine-year-old Noah, this was not his bag. Okay, so they did too much singing because he's a chip off the old block. So the minute they started singing, you didn't he, tell him about your fascination he, with Greece. He, he was kind. Of, that was on yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> 
Amy and I were, and then Amy and I were watching it. I, I, you didn't do a summer night thing, did I, you? I, and it was, and I was like, you know, now that I watch this at forty three, the closing scene with Olivia Newton John in the leather getup. Yeah, I said, I looked at Amy. I said, now that I watch this at forty three, when this, when I first saw this, when I was five or six years old, I knew there was something about this that I that I that I needed to watch. I didn't understand at the time what it was. Now that I see this years later, now I understand why this fascinated me. So much at such a young age. I was in high school. I was way ahead of you. Yes. All right. More in a moment with Mike Woody at the movie. Stay tuned. You're listening to Steve Dace. Letting the lion out of its cage. The Steve Day Show. All right, back here quickly. Mike Woody taking us to the movies. All right, here's what we want to do. We're not getting caught up on everything that's been going on since we last talked to you. So I want you to pick one more movie to review. Okay. And because we got some, we're getting to the slow time of year anyway. We can have to do some holdover stuff. Yeah, because so there's nothing opening this weekend. Well, I want to see Hidden Figures. Actually, Amy and I are going to see oh. that. Going to see that uh, this weekend. That's about the uh, the space program. Yeah, that, that's a good looking trailer. My daughters can't that. wait to movie. see that one. All right, so let's talk uh, one more film. One and more then film. What's, and what's new on demand? All right, let's talk about La La Land. La La Land. It was made by um, director Damien Cazizel, or what? I don't even remember how you pronounce his last name. He's the guy that did Whiplash a couple of years ago, which is a great film. So he's got a little money and he's got a little power now in Hollywood. He has made a modern musical with Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone that is absolutely awesome. I mean, the it's a, you know it's it's set in modern days. They're both he's a struggling jazz artist, she's a struggling actress. He won't give up on his passion and his integrity. She's just looking for a good job. And then it, you got that whole how she does well, he does well, and how does it work out for both of them. But periodically, they just break into song. I mean, it is a truly, it's it's just a, a gift from Hollywood to like the old musicals. I mean, it's just so much fun. You have this, we're not going to go through this yet, but you because you have this as your number one movie of 2016, don't you? I do. Okay. I do. Uh, our oldest went and saw it with one of her high school friends because she's the musically uh, right. inclined. She loved the movie, hated the ending. That's what she told me. Somebody that age would hate the ending. And if you once you see it, you will understand why she hated the ending. So how many mushroom clouds for La La Land? Uh, can I give it five? I'll give it five. If Let's it's your number one movie, doesn't it get five? It gets five. All right. So what's new on demand? Oh, boy. You know, it's kind of kind of slow on demand. Um, there's a couple of highlights. Snowden, I thought, was a really, really well done movie. With uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I almost, I almost was gonna get it, and then I saw it was Oliver Stone, and I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Sully, I mean, because Oliver though. Stone's gonna make Snowden look like you know, he does. He, he like tells he parted the, he he brought the stone tablets down from Mount Sinai. Well, it it does give you a different look. Well, I don't know. We'll never know what the truth is. So I've seen Sully, Sully, and Sully's good. It's, Sully is well made. I I just. It's well made. It's a Clint Eastwood film, so it's well made. I just don't right. understand what was the point. Well, yeah, they really didn't get to that. Yeah, they didn't tell me what the. I mean, it's well made. You'll enjoy it, but you're at the end. You'll be like, so. I mean, there's it, there's odd scenes where he just like spends several seconds wondering, did I make the right move? Well, which you know, I mean, which you can imagine he would, but 
Do we need to but see that's the, plane the plot? Cra- but do the we plot need to see him, the plane crash three times? The plot is him meandering about whether he made the right move or not. Well, the plot, and then, fa- and then and then facing a fake investigation where they overblown how the NTSB performed to the point they actually do apologize to the the people who actually did the investigation for the way they were depicted in the movie. I read. Oh, really? Yeah, because they were not depicted very well. But it's but it's well made. It's, it's just it's, it's just a, a, it was a, a weird story. weird story angle. But Quickly, got a minute left. What else would you recommend? All right, I would recommend Magnificent Seven. I've not seen a great it's film, good. but yeah. it's fun. Uh, the other one, the, the other major one that came out is um, Denial with Rachel Weisz against the Holocaust Denial. We'll get to that later. Mike, we'll see you next week. All right, guys. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we are back with Hour 2 of the Steve Day Show here on a Friday on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Of course, it's Hour 2 on a Friday. So for the first time in 2017, it's time for the Dace Group. Your weekly look at the week that was with a tip of the cap to the late John McLaughlin, who passed away last year. This is the Dace Group Roundtable. Issue one, a brewing Russian bromance. Did Russia give you this information or anybody associated with Russia? Uh, Our source is not a state party, so uh, the answer for our interactions is no. That's the voice of WikiLeaks founder and accused rapist Julian Assange sitting down with Sean Hannity of Fox News this week at the Ecuadorian embassy in London where Assange has lived for years. The interview focusing on getting Assange's side of the story after repeated attempts by the White House to pin the blame of the election entirely on Russia and by extension WikiLeaks. The intelligence community this week revealed that, based on the information they have available to them, Russia really did try to sway the election, but it didn't actually hack it or rig vote totals, which apparently 52% of Democratic voters think is the case, according to a YouGov survey from last month. But the reaction from the right to Assange, whose WikiLeaks data dumps have likely been responsible for the endangerment and deaths of thousands of American lives, has been appalling. Sean Hannity, the one who interviewed Assange, is quoted back in 2010 criticizing Barack Obama for not catching Assange and putting an end to WikiLeaks. Sarah Palin this week apologized to Julian Assange on Facebook for calling him anti-American back in 2008. And Donald Trump this week tweeted out his support of Assange as well. For a guy who's been a fierce opponent and critic of America, he sure seems to have a growing number of friends in the Republican Party. First question, is there anything legitimate to attribute to this Julian Assange uh, Russia bromance by certain elements on the right? And I say certain elements because there's still plenty of conservatives that are critical of, of both of these entities. In fact, the majority of them are. I know the, the media is trying to paint this as 
um, everybody on our side is 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 bro hugging these guys, and that's not true. But you do see one element uh, on our side bro hugging these guys, and it's uh, it's the most Trumpian element. Element. So is is this just simply what partisanship does to people? That I, I have to. I've got to ju- justify whatever advances my partisan aims, or is there something more happening here? I ask you, Todd. Well, of course, this is what we become used to partisanship doing to people. And, and the less we are dedicated sincerely and irrevocably to a higher power that guides our thinking and our actions, it will. But we can, yes, we can be parts of groups called Republicans and not sell out like this. Uh, but we we need to understand, uh, you know, wh- what what ultimately we are fighting for, and if we are willing to side with Julian Assange, it's it's okay. It, the, the man is an anarchist on, on some level, and that's dangerous. No matter whether they are helping us or hurting us, because uh, as you have pointed out, Steve, when will this game of Russian roulette end up putting a bullet in our head? And if we don't recognize that, if we sit there gleefully, constantly jumping up and down for the fall of Democrats in the way that this happened, we almost ultimately deserve to have it happen to ourselves because we're playing with fire. Kim? Well, inevitably, it will happen to us, right? And it's just a matter of I mean, it's happened before. this This guy got some of our soldiers killed. In Afghanistan several years ago. So, I mean, it, it, he's, it's already happened to us before. But the bromance aspect of it, you're not talking about someone taking a legitimate look at what he said and what the WikiLeaks are. But you're saying you don't want to just like um, full on have a romance and not hold him accountable for the other things that he's done. I, I understand in the world that we live in, east of Eden, we are not always going to get to make ideal uh, decisions. We're not always going in a fallen world. Get to have proxies and champions and 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 emissaries that are people of uh, his utmost or my high my you know are, have the utmost character. I understand that. Okay, but there is a difference between using the raw material at your disposal at the time uh, in order uh, to to make some hay in a fallen world. To then embracing and validating and outright championing the source of that raw material uh, when they're not worthy of it. And therefore changing your own ethics. I look at Snowden, for example. All right. So a couple of years ago, I would have been a pro-Snowden guy. His narrative is crumbling. It's 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 falling apart. And 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 the Oliver Stone film that came out last fall is a joke. It's it's basically makes the guy out to be St. Pius. That being said. Even if he turns out to be, and, and it looks like it's more likely that that's true now than it was a couple of years ago. Even if he turns out to be everything his detractors from the beginning said that he was, I'm still thankful for the fact that we did find out they were doing things with that spy program against our against us, yes. the people, that they shouldn't have been doing. Now, adults, especially if you've raised children, you have to learn to draw these distinctions. You do. It may turn out Snowden may end up being a total knuckle-dragger in the end, and it does seem like the story's evolving towards that conclusion. That doesn't mean, though, that the NSA program was good and legal and constitutional. So, yeah, this guy might be a knuckle-dragger. Maybe we shouldn't be fetting Edward Snowden. Maybe we shouldn't be elevating him to mythic status, but that doesn't make what the government was doing to us any less illegal. And that's the same thing here. Listen, if I was running the Trump campaign and WikiLeaks was busting Podesta and all these DNC emails. You know what I would have said? Shut 
and just let this play itself out. When a Sun Tzu, it, listen, this is the art of war stuff. When your opponent's making a fool out of themselves, get out of the way and let them. Let them. Okay, but you know what? I also wouldn't be doing. I don't. We. I wouldn't be having Hannity go to the go to London and interview him in the Ecuadorian embassy. I wouldn't tell. I wouldn't have Trump. At, you know, spend some of his political capital saying, "I believe Julian Assange and not my own intelligence community." That's the stuff I'm talking right. about, Kim. Exactly. Well, and then the other aspect you were talking about is the political parties, and you know, George Washington talked about that, and I, you know, saying that it's going to end up inevitably corrupt people, unprincipled people using the power for themselves, and I think that's what you're finding here, even with Sean Hannity, he's not part of the government, but you know, he's just going because it's ratings, right? Yeah, I, I think if if you watch a football game, which it doesn't happen very often at all, and somebody from the other team mistakenly runs towards uh, their own end zone and scores points for you, uh, you say thank you and you take them, but you don't change your heart and you don't change your attitude towards the other guy. He's playing for the other team. So, yeah, maybe uh, the other team, which uh, I would say that it's not a hyperbole, to say Assange is an, is an opponent of America based on everything that he's done in his past with WikiLeaks and other things. And yes, he maybe scored some points uh, perceptually uh, for uh, you know the Republican Party, but that doesn't mean you, you need to embrace him at any rate. This is just, again, I think right now what we're seeing is just political partisan hackery at its worst. Is it possible? You've been an elected official yeah. in a political party. I have been a well-connected networked activist within one. Is it possible, you and I have both to varying degrees, according to our own personalities, have attempted to be involved in one of these entities in, a, in an intimate level without losing our souls and made a, a lot of enemies yes, we have. in that process? Yes, we have. That doesn't mean, by the way, that we did not make mistakes in that right, process. That's not what we're saying. But is it, is it just not possible on some level? Do you ultimately, on some level, have to just bow the knee to the chocolate bunny to be in one of these things. Can you actually be successful on some on any level without without compromising compromising your soul, your soul at least a morsel of it? Is it possible? It's a rare person that can do that. It's absolutely rare. I mean, I saw people selling their soul, and this is the Iowa House where you get paid. You know, if you look per diem and all that, you know, maybe thirty thousand dollars, and you're selling your soul within the first week of getting elected. So. Um, it's very rare, but it's possible. What do you guys think of that question? Because you guys have been involved, but more on the outside compared to what Kim and I have done over the years. Todd, you've been working in the media. Aaron, you're just a young guy. Do you see examples of people who don't lose some of themselves, even the best people we have, by being heavily involved in this process? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways to look at it. The way that I choose to look at it is that I expect – I. Um, strive for the best or I want people to strive to the, for the best, but I, um, I I don't expect them to ever achieve that because we're all humans and we all will make mistakes. So to ask the question, is it possible to do this without compromising your soul? I, I don't know if that's necessarily the right question to be asking. Exit question. By the end of 2017, will WikiLeaks do something to damage Republicans in a Trump presidency, Todd? For sure. Yes. Yes. The answer is yes. Anarchists just can't help themselves. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Back here on the Dace Group Roundtable, your weekly look at the week that was here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Issue 2. 
to repeal or not to repeal or to sort of repeal. Republicans took the first steps this week to repeal Obamacare as they put language in the budget resolution to bleed funds from the failed program. That's great news, right? Well, not so much. The full repeal of Obamacare promised by Donald Trump and many others is turning into a bit of a bait and switch. Republicans are planning on keeping key provisions of the Affordable Care Act. Key provisions meaning those which irrevocably damaged America's health insurance system. According to statements from various Congress including the House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady. Essentially, the plan is to let Obamacare crash and burn by not funding it, but still keep the taxes that made health insurance so unaffordable during the years of Obamacare so that they can fund whatever replacement they come up with in the future. Whatever ends up happening to Obamacare, it's not going to be like quickly pulling off a Band-Aid. First question, Kim, I'm going to start with you because you have actually served in a legislative process and you're the only one here on the panel who has. The rest of us have just observed one. And so I want to make sure that we aren't just instantly skeptical because these issues are more complicated than we think they are from the outside when you're trying to unravel an onion, right? Repealing legislation isn't done very often. Um, so what is the real problem here? Is it the, that Congress is unwilling to roll back uh, this disaster, that it's tougher to do so with the parliamentary legislative process than we believe that it is. Uh, what say you? I think what's happening is that um, the legislature, they don't believe these principles that we're talking about. And that's why they're not going to repeal it or they're going to come back with an Obamacare light. It's all a matter of will, and they have no will to do it. They could, they could do this. I mean, there's no... Th- so, like, you had uh, Mike Lee and Ted Cruz come out with a full repeal, blanket repeal, earlier this week. I think Steve King did it, uh, our Iowa congressman, yesterday on the House side. So you think it is as simple, even the convoluted way that Obamacare became law in the first place. Because this, these are the things our listeners are going to be told in other media outlets. Right. They're going to be told, well, it's not that simple, uh, that it was done by reconciliation the first time around. It has to be undone that way, and it, you can't just have a blanket repeal legislatively. Is it that simple? It is that simple. So in I your mean, case, could, it is a question of will. Yeah, it is a question of will, political will, and they have none. I'm just looking at it from the outside in, uh, of course, to me, again, it just seems like a lot of self-serving here because we they've got the rhetoric all right. The rhetoric sounds great. The rhetoric sounds like, oh, we're really in it for the little guy. We're really in it for the small businesses who have uh, been hurt the most by uh, this legislation when all that's going on right now is they're trying to figure out the best way that they can score future political points for them that will help them that's that's what it looks like for me and on top of that that's that's bad enough but on top of that they're just really bad at at this whole game they're really bad at the political (laughs) game and so that's a double whammy in my view i'd like to echo that they are tragically bad at this uh steve you had a guest on uh yesterday talking about how the cheats that they uh, Obama's side of the ledger had to go through to count people who gained health care, and they were counting people that just moved from one system to another, didn't actually add add anything. Right. Well, here, they, Paul Ryan and company they need to be thinking about people like me. I mean, health care, Obamacare, has been debilitating for my family. It has been a lifestyle changer. We cannot do the things we would like to do because of Obamacare on a weekly basis. And people like me have got to see and see quick a change. A a bean count needs to happen where it's just abundantly clear. Otherwise, they're going to turn on this group as well. 
Well, and I think Daniel Horowitz said, didn't he, that mm -hmm. um, it's actually because they're keeping those regulations that it's actually going to be worse. The insurance companies are going to jack it up even more. So it's not going to get better if they continue this. All right, so your guy Rand Paul said this week, Republicans should not repeal this without a replacement in place. What do you think he meant by that? I don't know why he said that. I mean, clearly, um, you know, he didn't want it part of the resolution, the budget resolution, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, he wanted it separate to have that debate, and he wanted to repeal it. I'm not sure what he's got planned or why he thinks. What would you to... replace it with? Right. What would you? That's what I'm asking. What would you replace it with? Because I think we all recognize it's going to be replaced by something. What I find fascinating, and this is a this is a criticism from the left that I think is actually valid. Republicans like to say to people like us, we voted 50 times over the last four years to repeal Obamacare, right? And he vetoed it every single time because he's not going to veto it. We, so we did what the people asked us to do. Now there's more to it than that. They, they could use certain budget restraints, and, and that, that's what the whole showdown with Ted Cruz a few years ago right. was he was pointing out that they were not being completely honest. There were things that they could do yes. beyond just sending bills to the president's desk that they knew that he would veto, right? There were other things they could do. But that notwithstanding, that battle's over now. But, but they do like to say to people like us, you know, hey, we voted 50 times to repeal this thing. He, he vetoed it every single time. And one of the criticisms I've seen from the left that I think is valid. You mean to tell me you guys voted 50 times to repeal this thing and you don't know day one what your replacement is? So they, is that just show that all the, all the repeal votes that you took all these last four years were just all show votes? How in the world could you not have your replacement ready to go when you voted over 50 times to repeal this legislation the last few years. Aaron, is that a valid criticism I, from I, our opponents? I, I think it is. And going back to the original question, is it uh, really the, the Congress's fault here? Is it just a, a matter of will, or is it the fact that the American people uh, rely on this? Because this is where you get into the philosophical weeds. Whether or not we actually uh, should, it's the role of the government to actually uh, provide health care for its citizens and that's again that goes into it that's a whole nother can of worms that i don't think our country especially is is capable of having right now and when the people are as confused as they are even people who want obamacare repealed a lot of them say but i want to keep the pre-existing conditions but i hate the uh, mandate well they clearly don't get this from the start i mean those two are right. intimately uh, uh, related so uh, and furthermore they have to figure out what Donald Trump is going to want what he's going to desire because they don't want to spend every single issue having some sort of tweet that's going to yeah, come tweet <laughs> gasm boomerang back on them right Kim your thoughts on that well I think we all recognize it pre-existing conditions that is you've heard of third rails fourth rails hot stoves that's radioactive no one's touching that then they win. So, so by th 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 that's just the reality mm -hmm. of the world. No, no it shouldn't it, it, be. It, it is. It's just the reality. No, it, it it's is. not. It is, It is though. No. But it is. Maybe it should not be. Then we've be. lost. Maybe it should not be, but it is. Kim, you settle this debate. What do you <clears> think? Well, I have to go back to the Obamacare votes that you talked about, the 50 of them. Clearly, that's a fundraising thing if they don't have something in ready. So, right? this, so your view is this was the Republican Party's version of Jill Stein's recounts? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, um, and then, of course, they probably thought Hillary was going to win. So they thought so it was a done deal. The election was how many months? Was, was, yeah, was going on two months ago. Could have had a plan in okay. place. In fact, definitely. it was two months ago tomorrow, right? So what's been going on since then? Right. I, I would like to see who's coming up with um, a plan, but um, I think some of those insurance um, uh, 
regulations um, allowing, I think Daniel Horowitz said it really well when he talked about we should allow insurance companies to cover and have any kind of plan they want to across state lines and get that free market in there again, and you're going to get more people covered at a lower cost. All right, exit question. In 100 days, will there be no repeal, a sham repeal, or a full repeal? Kim? Sham. 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 The answer is sham. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Back here on this Dace Group Roundtable here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Let's get to issue three. Not with a bang, but the 115th Congress begins with a facepalm. It's the first Congress after what was billed as an historic anti-establishment election, and one of the 115th Congress's first moves was to anonymously vote to end Americans' right to anonymously report ethics violations made by Congress. Republicans voted early this week to end the Office of Congressional Ethics, a supposedly nonpartisan office that was set up in the wake of numerous ethics scandals years ago to be somewhat of an ethics watchdog for Capitol Hill. But after a tweet by Donald Trump criticizing Republicans for making this their first priority. Republicans reversed course and decided to keep the Office of Congressional Ethics open. At the end of the day, this little episode should go down in the encyclopedia next to Tone Death. First question, how, how in the world did the Republicans get together after the election? And Kim, we're going to rely on you again here because you're the one that you've actually served in a caucus. We have not. Right. So so help us to see a process where after this election is over and a guy wins by railing against every th- populist railing against insiders and the system, et cetera. And, and their reaction to that is to get together and have the first item on their agenda. And I understand the history of this office and it's a bit of a scam. I, I, I get that. Okay. But, but again, there's the political reality of the world in which we live, right? So your reaction after this election is, hey, guys, first thing we're going to do here, stick with me now, is we're going to do an anonymous vote where no one goes on the record to get rid of this, ethics, or, or this office that looks at ethics violations, all right? First on the agenda, uh, all right, on three, right? We're huddled up on three, ready, break. How does that happen? No one, no one, not even a Justin Amash, comes out publicly and says, uh, what time did these don't start? No, we're not doing that. Okay? Did anybody watch November 7th? Was anybody looking at the election returns? No, we're not going to. How did no one say this was a bad idea? No one. Was it really no one? No one said a word. Wow. No one said a word until people lost their freaking minds over this when the story came out this week. Thousands of calls poured into Capitol Hill, and then the next day, they reversed 
course on this. Yeah. Well, they were political idiots. I'm just going to say it. I mean, you know, they really didn't understand the election, obviously. They don't under, and they have, you know, actually condescending, they're condescending. They don't really care. And so what happens is in the caucus, for example, you have the leadership come in and they basically top down says, this is what's going to happen. And a lot of times they'll give you notes on what, what the bill requires. A lot of people don't read them. Um, and this was a rule change for, I'm sure some of them thought, yeah, whatever. I look at this, and I, I think there's two options. Either they're um, they're really, really stupid, they're really bad at this game, um, or there's something much more nefarious, like they actually got together in a smoke-filled room, rubbed their hands together, and said, "Ha Look what we can do to the American people, and they'll never they'll never know uh, what got them." I think applying Occam's razor to this, I, I think it's the former. I, I just think one, most of them don't actually believe what they say they believe on the campaign trail. And two, uh, they're just really bad at politics. They're just they're just bad at it. It can't be said enough. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I don't know how, how much. How bad do you have to be? Really bad. I mean, this is uh, this is mind numbed, isn't it? Mind numbed, Todd. I mean, uh, this was this you led you led with this. This was your this was your glass jaw to throw out there and say, hey guys, take your best shot at it. Why? Isn't the way to get rid of this is you you wait, and I don't know how many complaints come through there on a regular basis, but don't you wait until a Democrat's in trouble, and then you say, okay, I'll make you a deal. We'll make that go away if you make this whole thing go away. Isn't that the way you probably go about doing this? And furthermore, if you want to score political points right here, you know, again, you point out the scam. This thing was created in 2008. Why isn't anybody standing up here? You know, you Democrats are behaving like this thing is holy writ, handed down by a combination of Moses and John Adams himself. But you guys have been taking a, you know, dropping trow on the Constitution for how long now? You know, why is this thing so sacrosanct to right. you? Right. There, there is an opportunity to grandstand here, Kim, but it is, is to have hearings on the ineffectiveness of this office, point out all the things it let go, all the, all the things right. that it overlooked. That's, and, 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 that's why, and that's why we're going to get rid of this, uh, because we're not going to have some NGO or NGA uh, investigating things. We have elected officials. That's our job. And if we don't do that job like this, like this sham didn't do the last eight years, vote us out of office. That was your grandstanding opportunity with right. this, right? And plus, there is other ethics committees. I mean, so it's not as if there's going to be nobody watching. But, um, yeah, this was just poor optics and poor political theater. On a scale of 1 to 10, how politically damaging was this this week, Kim? Oh, four. I'd say probably three. Two. A three. It could have been a seven, but they quickly figured out the mistake the next day, which I guess you give them credit for cleaning up the mess they made. You're listening to Steve Dace. Back once more on the Dace Group Roundtable, your weekly look at the week that was here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. Issue four. It's at real Donald Trump's world, and the rest of us are just living in it. It's been no news that for over a year now, Donald Trump's primary mode of communication with the masses when he's not on stage somewhere is through Twitter. And for all the bluster we've experienced from his Twitter account, we're starting to get a more clear picture on at least the perceived power that medium will allow him to wield as president. As mentioned before, his tweet this week criticizing Republicans for their support of ending the Office of Congressional Ethics seemingly caused Republicans to change course. 
Bernie Sanders took to the Senate floor this week to, with a giant picture of one of Trump's tweets from 2015 promising not to cut entitlements. Sean Spicer, the newly appointed White House press secretary, stated this week he has no idea what Trump is going to tweet at any given time. Trump also tweeted a mini tirade against General Motors for making one of their cars in Mexico. That ended up being factually incorrect, but not before setting the media into a tizzy. Love it or not, stupid or not, power that's real or not, Donald Trump's Twitter account is not going to be going away anytime soon, and you can bet it'll continue to be one of the most cited sources of the Trump era. I find this issue fascinating. I do. Because I, I, I think there are pluses and minuses to this. Because on the plus side, you have his ability to, to destroy their narratives. Like, they used to be able to get up every morning and say, here are the talking points we're going to push, the stories we're going to push, and here are the guests we're going to get on the right or the left to help us with that narrative, etc. They can't do that anymore, right? And I go back to the day that he, that I go back to the day he appointed Scott Pruitt to run the EPA, which was like 48 hours after Ivanka had hung out with Al Gore at Trump Tower to talk climate change. You, all of us have lived in an era where Scott Pruitt being appointed to run the EPA would have been the end of the environment as we know it. That would have been, we were all going to die, and, and that would have been their news cycle for the next day to test to see if the GOP had the stones to ride it out or not. And if they did, then they'd just figure out something else to melt down about tomorrow. And if they didn't, they'd just keep hammering that story till Scott Pruitt had to go away, right? Trump changed that whole story with what he said about some company moving their jobs overseas on Twitter, and no one talked about it. So I see the pluses there, and then you see the minuses, right? Like, well, you know, I believe what you know, Julian Assange told us that Russia didn't give him the leaks, as if you know he's never lied about anything. So I, I think I think there I'm 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 fascinated by how this dynamic is going to work for the next four years. What about you guys, Kim? I'll start with you. Well, you know, I agree completely because there are going to be good things about it and bad things. I mean, you saw what happened when he tweeted with the House ethics thing, right? That's good. Of course, he probably should have told Kellyanne that she was he was going to do that because, you know, she came out going, yeah, I like this. I, I support this. And then, bam, there goes the tweet. Same thing with, like, well, Obamacare. Let me just say now, we've deferred to Kim a lot. We've talked a lot about areas mm-hmm. where she has experience. Yeah. I'm the only person here that does know Kellyanne Conway. Mm-hmm. And when you do what Kellyanne Conway does for a living, and most of the time it, you have to – see, this is where I used to struggle with people like you when you got elected. Even when I thought you were going overboard – I had to work so much to get anybody to show any backbone at all that I was always, when people would call me up and say, can you talk Kim off, can you talk her off the ledge? <laughs> I was always very hesitant to, because I, I, I have to spend so much effort to get people to even have a backbone to, to then, even when I think they're going too far, to then talk them into being more uh, like malleable. Yeah, I, I, I have a, so I can see why Kellyanne Conway's like, guys, do you know most, of, I have more balls than most of the men I have worked for in my political career. And now you want me to go into this guy's office and say, yeah, let's get the estrogen going up in here. I can see why she's hesitant to do that. Can't you guys? I can see why she's like, I'd rather err on the side of, of megalomania than another, than another pansy. Because that's, frankly, what we've been, in her line of work, that's what she's had to work with most of her career, right? I'm just saying that she has to, she, she ends, she should know what he's going to say. I mean, it would help her. 
is what I'm saying. But um, the other thing I'm looking at is the downside of some of his tweets. Because, for example, you see when he criticized Boeing for going over budget, right? So then there's a market Mm -hmm. correction, right? It went down. That's an opportunity to buy. So then it goes back up. So there's things that he has to be a little bit more careful about when you're talking about different companies. Because I'm a little concerned about manipulating the market. There's another angle to this, too. And I think that's a great point you just made. There's There's another angle to this, too, which is... He really may not be any more undisciplined than several of the people that we've elected to this office in the past. It's just they did not have this tool at their disposal to stream of consciousness instantly whenever they wanted to, right? You see what I'm trying to say, Todd, that that this exacerbates uh, these sorts of issues. But on the other hand, it, it... it does give him an opportunity to wield a sledgehammer that other guys chose not to use in the past. That's a great point because he, even the Pope is on Twitter in some respect. But let's put, would any of us, if we got to sit in that uh, Oval Office, we would use Twitter, and I'm confident I would use Twitter myself. I wouldn't just farm it out. I, I, I can't stand it when people do that. But would we be sure that we're not coming across as you know the the teenage troll at 10:30 at night we would be sure we were not doing that people don't you know what is the president doing right now you know and he doesn't hey, I'm the guy that stood up at a I'm the guy that stood up at a Ted Cruz rally right the night before the Iowa caucuses and and said you know we we can't have somebody you know tweeting like they have Bieber fever in the White House at 3 a.m. right 70 year old men tweeting like they have Bieber fever I I so I get this concern yeah, and right. then did you see how lately he just on Twitter he went after Arnold Schwarzenegger for having a terrible see, ratings that, on the Apprentice? That, so stuff, it's just kind of like, what's he doing? Just as we talked a few minutes ago about when when they got when the Republicans got together after the election said, guys, we're going to lead off with getting rid of the ethics office. Um, does is there no inner ear? Is there no conscience? You know that at some point says to you, um. I get doing something like this once. I had one of these blowups in the last election myself, right? But at what point do you say, don't I have 10 million other problems on my plate right now than trashing a show that I'm still the executive producer of? I, that's the part that I, that I, I just don't understand. So See, just, go ahead. Uh, well, just quickly, I, I think uh, something like this was always going to happen, just the way that the world goes. In my generation, we've said it before, if you can't make your point in 140 characters or less, then you've, you know, you're, you're losing the, uh, the battle there. Something, something like this, a personality like this, was going to reach a height of political power like this at some point. I just wish it wasn't uh, Donald Trump setting that trend right now. Exit question on a scale of 1 to 10. How beneficial will Trump's Twitter account be to conservatives in the next four years, Kim? Five. The letter A. Yeah, you got to go down the middle five. I think you guys are right. I think it'll be a five. Because I think half the time it's going to hurt us there and half is. the time it's going to help us. Yes. You're listening to Steve Dace. Back here on the Dace Group Roundtable, your weekly look at the week that was here on the Salem Radio Network, powered by Conservative Review. So up until now, we've taken a look back at the past seven days. Now we take a look ahead. It is time for predictions, and Aaron, you will begin. I will uh, go on the record by uh, saying, yes, I think that Rex Tillerson will not be confirmed. That's one. 
The other one as is Secretary of as State. Secretary of State. Wow. Uh, so that's one. I that think would be a big one. The other one that will not be uh, confirmed this year is whoever his first nominee for Supreme Court is. Whoever that is, no matter if they're liberal or conservative. Wow. Wow. Did you see Mike Lee say today that he would accept it if it was offered? Oh, I did not see that. I did yeah, that, see that. That'll, that'll get my fanboy up. Yeah. That will get my fanboy up. Todd. On a inauguration day, whether during the parade, whether in front of the, one of the ballrooms, or perhaps even in front of the Capitol itself, I, I haven't been to one of these. I don't know quite what the security is like. But there is going to be a major protest of some kind that, that tries to disrupt events on some level. Something that's beyond, well, there were just the people out there saying things. You know, it, They're going to make a statement on that day, the, the enemies of Donald Trump. Somehow. And lastly, Packers, Lions, Steelers, Raiders. Those are the teams you think win this weekend? Yes. Lions have no chance to win, Todd. I got to do it for you no, since you're not going to do it. Yeah, you, no, they, have no, they have no chance. I picked win. them, remember? Listen to me. Yeah, they have no chance. Kim, go ahead. I can do the for the whole 2017. Um, the Trump voters are going to be completely um, upset because you're not going to get any of your political um, promises. here. I mean, Trump's not going to keep any of his political promises. There will be no wall. There will be no Obamacare repeal. There will be no draining the swamp. There will be no change of the immigration policy. You're really harsh on a lot of people's mellow, Kim. I know. Happy New Year. You started it with the judge yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, you, you sort of set the tone there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, fussy pants. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my prediction is I, I'm hesitant to make one. I mean, I went on Twitter on December 18th and predicted within two weeks P.J. Fleck was going to be the coach at Minnesota, and that's they hadn't kidding. even fired their own coach yet. All right. It's going to give me heartburn as a Hawkeye fan. Okay. I and, and so I got that one right. And that wasn't even that job wasn't even open yet. So I'm I I'm at that point where when you make a call like that, you just feel like you should get out of the business and go out like George Costanza go out on a high note. Don't get cocky, kid. Humble exactly. bragging here. That's <laughs> But but I recognize I'm not permitted to do that cuz I wouldn't let any of you guys get away with that. So I will pull an Aaron and go with low-lying fruit. Okay. Clemson beats Alabama on Monday for the national championship, but I will, I'll add a degree of difficulty for fun. They win the game by more than a touchdown. I think they win by more than a touchdown. You go back to the game last year when Alabama beat them. They needed an onside kick, a tight end to have 200 yards receiving, and a kick return for a touchdown. I don't know that I've seen a game in my life where all three of those things happened in one game. You, I mean, you might see a tight end get 200 yards receiving once in your life. Onside kicks don't work 90% of the time. And most kickoffs are touchbacks nowadays, let alone touchdowns. And Alabama had to do all three to win that game by four points last year. So I think Clemson wins on Monday night and by more than a touchdown. Hour three is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here tonight on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. 
Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up later in this hour, a little feedback from you. This week's sign, the apocalypse is upon us. But first, it's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? Question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. It is that time of the evening when our producer Aaron gets to turn tables on us. He gets to control the agenda for at least the next few minutes and ask the questions around here. Three of them, in fact. He can ask us anything he would like provided he answers the same questions himself. Aaron? Thank you, Steve. Uh, question one, what is the most intense moment you've ever read in a fiction book? A moment where you were literally sweating, gripping the pages of the book that you were reading. Oh, boy, that's good. Um, I can think of uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula chasing him through uh, the Carpathian Mountains at the end of the book. Uh, that showdown at the end. That's one of my all-time favorite fiction books. I mean, that's incredibly well-written. And he was kind of a one-hit wonder. You know, he wrote other stuff besides that. But, you know, he's sort of he's sort of the strawberry alarm clock, Dexy's Midnight Runners of Western literature. You know, he had like one great hit. And then, you know, like he had his Kaja Gugu, Too Shy Shy, Hush Hush, Eye to Eye, and like, like nothing after that. But I guess if that's going to be your one-hit wonder, that's a pretty good one to hit on. So I could think of several, but um, just off the top of my head, I would probably go with that. That Because I, I could come up with other ones, but that's one of the most prominent in my memory. You know, there's a lot of books that I find gripping and I don't want to put down, but to have something that causes that kind of anxiety? No. Well, I think he was being metaphorical, not like I mean, you were really sweating. I mean, just like, but yeah, but still, even, I can't even describe it like you did. I mean... So, like, I, I love, for example, War and Peace. I loved, at the time, all those um, Left Behind series books, and I would want to see the next one or read the next one, but I don't know. That's it. Understood, Todd. There was a book I read a while, um, 20 years ago, called Play for a Kingdom. It's set in the uh, Civil War, and it starts off setting up uh, these three buddies, and it really seems like one of them is the, uh, the protagonist. They're really hyping up. He's the alpha, and they go into this battle, and it describes in graphic detail the guy you think is going to be there the whole book early on. He takes a bullet in the head. And so the guy that was just kind of his buddy is suddenly now has to become a leader. And it, it talks about going through the Civil War and actually finding peace. Steve won't be surprised. Through baseball, the, uh, there's temporary truces where the Union side and the Confederate side play baseball games. An excellent book. Play for a Kingdom. Uh, as far as a fiction book, I mean, I, I'm just going with the ones that stuck out in my mind after I read this question again. And uh, two do. One is, for some reason, there's just something about the silver chair when uh, Puddleglum and the other uh, main characters are falling down into the kingdom uh, underneath the the, uh, the world. And I'm totally forgetting, totally spacing on all of, all of the names right now. That that is freaky in a certain way. You didn't but, forget Puddleglum. Puddleglum, no. Well, how could I forget Puddleglum? <laughs> Uh, but then the other one uh, that sticks out in my mind, reading Harry Potter and the uh, Basilisk uh, for the first time. So Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, when he enters the Chamber of Secrets for the first time and does battle with the Basilisk. 
Uh, you know, since you brought freaky. up Harry Potter, I'll, Harry I'll, Potter. I'll, 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 I'll give you two examples of Harry Potter books that did this for me. My two favorite Harry Potter books are Goblet of Fire. The, mm-hmm. May, the, the May scene in the movie is great. It's much better in the book. Um, that was very gripping. And then the end. I mean, the showdown at the end of Deathly Hallows. I, I thought, I know it's kind of, I've said this about The Dark Knight. The Dark Knight, if it was written about a gritty police officer, same plot line, up against a maniacal killer, but not a guy in a cape and a cowl, would be Serpico, best picture, you know. The Deathly Hallows, the final Harry Potter book, is as well-written of a fiction book as any conclusion to a series, fiction series I've ever read. And the way that it ends, it, it wraps up at the end, is just about perfect. Question two, is there a moment in your life where your life flashed before your eyes? You know, I had a car accident um, when I was in my uh, early 20s. I was coming back from a uh, from a fast food run after partying with my buddies at the bars the night before. This was a different life back then, guys, obviously. And I was driving down the street with no seatbelt on, a uh, foreign exchange student, broadsided my car. He was driving like a 73 Charger, and I'm driving like an 87 Skyhawk. So American Bondo met American Steel. I think we all know how that one was going to turn mm-hmm. out. I and and I saw him come out of the corner of my eye, and so I grabbed my steering column to brace myself. The force of the impact moved me, and I was about 350, 60 pounds at the time. The force of the impact moved me and the entire steering column almost into the passenger seat. And I remember I got out. I was angry, and then I remember seeing all kinds of glass uh, come out of my head. And then the next thing I know, I fainted, and I'm on a, I wake up, and I'm in a, I passed out, and I'm on an ambulance gurney going to the hospital. And that moment there, I did stop and think to myself as I was sitting in the hospital, and that, I mean, I, I didn't have my spiritual conversion or anything for several years later, but that was a moment there where I thought, I think this was like 1995, I thought, you know, I was going to be like most likely to succeed in high school, and I'm like a total loser, Right. So I, that was a huge moment in getting me to um, apply a work ethic, take responsibility for my own life. So that's probably about the closest that I could I could think of something like that. Kim? Boy, I don't have anything like that. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I, I guess the thing that's closest is when we had a tornado coming through Des Moines, and it was actually in West Des Moines. I'm out with the girls, and they were itty-bitties, and I just remember having to park the car it's getting really nasty, and I grab both the girls, and they're little, and I'm running with these two girls to go to get um, shelter, and that was, a, you know, the moment. I was riding an ATV in Utah, and I went over a sand dune, and I was with more experienced riders, and I gunned the throttle too hard, and so when I, I hit, got way too much air, came down, hit t- front tires first, was thrown off, and as I'm rolling down the sand... I'm thinking this very large mechanical vehicle is somewhere, and is it about to roll over me, land on top of me? So that's the closest thing. That's intense. Um, there was one time I was uh, making my way back up to uh, Minnesota because I lived there at the time from uh, Iowa, and uh, it had just started to snow, and I had really bald tires, but it wasn't coming down very very hard, and so I decided, you know, it's good, It's a good idea to just keep my car in cruise control going 70 miles an hour, mm. started fishtailing around the road, I totally lost control, ended up in the ditch, uh, car was completely fine, I drove it uh, the rest of the way that night, but that was, uh, that was the closest I've come to having my life flash before my eyes. Uh, question three, if you met an alien from out of outer uh, space, and that was the first contact any human had made with such a creature, and that creature could somehow speak English, what would your first reaction be? 
would my reaction be? Would you try to talk to it? What, what's a question you would ask an alien? I would want to know, why are you here? What was the impulse to bring you here? What's your motivation? What's, you know, I mean, I'd want to know that. Friend would, or foe? Yeah, I mean, th- that too. But, you know, I think obviously it would prompt a lot of existential questions, right? Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd want to know, yeah, there's the friend or foe aspect, but, you know, what is it about what they believe that would drive them? Because I have, I have really, other than the fact that I love science fiction as an entertainment vehicle, I have little or no interest, really, right now. I, I just, if there is life on other planets, I, I just have little or no interest in interacting with it. I, I like my own life. I, I've got a purpose. I've got a family, you know. So what what's going on in their realm that, that they would seek to interact with us? To what end? Why? What's the motivation? And then after that, I mean, I'd want to know where they're from. I want to know <laughs> um, how long it took them to get here. Um, are there more? Mm-hmm. Now, you know what? I may have to modify what I just said. Because if they did have the technology and the sorts of things to make it here, then if it was more convenient to find out what their lives were like, then I might be more interested. Do you have income tax uh, in uh, whatever planet you live on? Because <laughs> you know me. Is there direct TV there? Have you, guys figured out, have you guys figured out transporter technology? Because that's the one thing we're missing here. Because there's lots of things in our own world that I would like to see. I just don't want to have to travel to get there, Todd. I would ask your question in a different way, Steve, rhetorically. This is about Trump, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> this is why Trump won. That's funny. The Nightly Buzz is next. You're listening to Steve Dace. the front lines of the battle for liberty, the Steve Day Show. And now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. You see, there's no guilt in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We gotta get some buzz going. And this is the Nightly Buzz, where we go back, take a look at some of the stories we didn't have time to get to earlier in the evening, because not even in three hours can we cover everything worthy of covering. So these are those headlines that are trending right now on your social media or at your water cooler at work. As reported to us by Aaron, we've got, in response, the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. Uh, First story, Texas lawmakers will decide whether to embrace an issue that caused a national uproar in North Carolina, banning creepy dudes from using the bathroom of their choice. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick unveiled the proposed law yesterday at a news conference. Well, this will be uh, fascinating. Um, because you saw how they tried to pick on North Carolina, and they lost some major events as a result of that, like the mm-hmm. NBA All-Star Game. But there's a slew of major events lined up for Texas this coming year and in the ensuing years. And uh, Texas is a different animal politically uh, than North Carolina. They are more braced for these kinds of fights. 
in fact, they're more willing to embrace these kinds of fights. Um, you also don't have a situation. In fact, if you know Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and I've met him a couple of times because we were on the Ted Cruz team together, uh, he's considered this. He's not like Dan Forrest in North Carolina. The dynamic in North Carolina was Dan Forrest, the lieutenant governor, was the real conservative culture warrior. Uh, McCrory was more of your establishment kind Squish. of Republican. Squish type. And and there was a lot of talk that he would veto HB2, that he wouldn't have the stones to stand by it, because this was not the kind of legislation that you could just kind of let it sign it into law, and you were going to have to you're gonna have to own it. And so a lot of us were surprised that he signed it into law in the first place. Right? Because the narrative is, well, this is why McCrory lost a state that Trump easily won, except that's not why McCrory lost, because Forrest, who was the face of the legislation, won by seven points the same day that McCrory lost. Now, in, in Texas, the dynamic is the opposite. The governor is, is more of the conservative culture warrior type, and the LG is more of the, is more, of the more establishment kind of candidate. All right? So in this case, to see Patrick, the LG, pick up the mantle for this, I'm just telling you, I I don't believe there's any way he would do this if Governor Abbott in Texas was not on board up front. I just don't. I, I don't think I don't think I don't think if Governor Abbott wasn't willing to sign this, this wouldn't even be debated in the legislature. I mean, I, I just think they've already had these conversations. They've already, I think they've already figured out what their strategy for the pushback is going to be. These guys, this is Texas. I mean, they, they fight these battles every day that ends in Y and, and, and usually win them by, by, by lunchtime. So I think this will be a lot different. I think the rainbow jihad is probably in for a much different fight here than when North Carolina's Republican Party kind of got caught back on their heels with the pushback, not anticipating it. I think Texas, knowing what North Carolina already went through, looking at its political apparatus, the fact that the more squishy Republican is the one pushing it tells me that they're ready for this fight. I love the movie The Hunt for Red October, and Scott Glenn's submarine captain uh, says at one point, the hard part about uh, playing chicken is knowing when to flinch. Texas does not plan on flinching they want this fight and whereas it's being framed in north carolina like you know you're you're paying for this economically at some point it needs to be asked how many markets rainbow jihad are you going to burn because there's a there's a whiplash on this in the other way right and 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 texas is picking I mean, that you know, you fight at, and god bless them look for at it. the acc they moved they they moved their championship football game they moved it from from charlotte they moved it to orlando right and they drew crickets for that game all right, so you're going to move, and, and Florida is a major tourist attraction as well. But I, I, and that's why I point that out. Even if you're moving it to a place with a built-in tourist walk-up, like Orlando, Florida, it's not it's not easy for fans to, to make all these changes and everything else. So I think you're, I think I think Texas, this is a sure sign that they're going to call the Rainbow Jihad's bluff here. Yeah. I, otherwise, I don't think this even gets this far. And Charlotte, Charlotte, and North Carolina is one thing. I mean, it's a, it's got a lot of it's it's a high population state. But Texas is another animal. The larger the population they have, they and the the more businesses and things of that nature that are located and headquartered in that state, the state has a lot of leverage that they can use. It's the last know. remaining diverse diverse urban red state left in the country. It's the last remaining one. Mm-hmm. So it's not, and, and, and so they have to, they had to fight all these fights to even make, get that status within their own state. I have got to believe they're far more prepared for this than North Carolina was. Well, last we'd year. hope so. But Dallas News and, of course, the media is going to be telling them you're going to lose, like, for example, Dallas News says $8.5 billion 
if you have this anti-gay transgender bathroom law. So but, 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 you got it's it. all playing chicken too. But they're yeah, playing they chicken are. too. I mean, these yeah. were the same headlines they ran two years ago about if you if you get rid of Planned Parenthood, this is what we'll lose. We'll yep. lose. And so they called their bluff on that. I, that's the point. I think I, for Texas to get the for Republicans to be ascendant in Texas in the first place required calling all of the bluffs from the Dallas Morning News to mm-hmm. even get to where they're at. So I've got to believe they are prepared for this because they had to do this to get the power that they now have. Next story, a change.org petition uh, calling on the Walt Disney Corporation to make Carrie Fisher's iconic Princess Leia character a Disney princess is well on its way to its goal of 75,000 signers. That's according to People Magazine, as they reported that today. At the time uh, of uh, this report, uh, more than 57,000 individuals uh, joined uh, the uh, petition started by Cody Christensen to do so. Who would object to this? Not me. I mean, can, is there is there a rational objection to this, Todd? That I I, I can't see. And I, I actually spent a little bit more time than I probably care to admit, wondering if there is some legitimate canon reason why that does this open why up some weird always, Pandora's yeah. box? But I can't think of one. Like we were playing um, board games last night as a family, and you know one of the questions was name three Disney princesses, and so you know. Is Princess Leia a Disney princess now? Because, but yeah, they—that's their property. So, and uh, it's a—it's it, it, the occasion, of course, is is proper given her passing. I don't know anybody who would object to this. Uh, last story, I think uh, the number of Americans not participating in the labor force hit a record of ninety-five million one hundred two thousand in December of twenty sixteen. That's according to the latest numbers released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Last month, the number exceeded 95 million for the first time, with uh, 95 million 84,000 Americans not participating. Well, you're dealing in a situation with about, I think it's about 86 million Americans work in the private sector. All right, why does that matter? Because those are the people that are actually creating the revenue to, to keep the public, se- to, to fund the public sector. Because even if you have a public sector job that matters, like a cop or even a soldier, your job is a, from a revenue standpoint is a loss leader because we had to take money from the private sector to pay you. Now, we're all happy to do that because you're helping us, okay? But, but even if you're doing a job of priority, that is doing – you're protecting us or you're serving on our behalf, that job financially is a loss leader. Now, if you're doing one of these other government things that maybe people think we don't need to have, you know, like food taster – or some of these kinds of things, then that only expounds on the problem. But when only 86 million Americans are working in the private sector and 95 million Americans are out of work, period, you don't have to be a mathematician, guys, to figure out. This isn't a business plan that has long-term success in its future. Listening to Steve Dace. The Sleeping Giants Alarm Clock, Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. I know, I know a lot of you are coming out of a joyous holiday season and you're feeling a little bit down because it's back to the grind, you know, the decorations are coming down, 
the the kids are are not on uh, minding their p's and q's because uh, they, Christmas is coming up, so I want to make sure they're not on the wrong side of Santa's list. They've gone back to their normal uh, selves as well, right? It's it's the lull period. It's the downtime. We've got really good news for you right now because we're going to make it even worse. That's right. If you thought things were dour now in the in the throes of of winter's desolation, we now present you proof things can get even worse. For the first time this year, Aaron has this week's sign. The apocalypse is upon us. Thank you, Steve. Let's take a moment and recognize some famous cross-dressers through the ages, shall we? <laughs> Why not? Why not? Caitlyn Jenner. I'm fine with calling him Caitlin. I mean, that's a weird name for a guy, but that's the only one I can think of. Can you think of any more? Mama called him Bruce. I'm going to call him Bruce. J. Edgar Hoover? Nice. <laughs> I mean, that was the rumor anyway. I don't know. Uh, well, you're missing one. Very important one. According to Huffington Post writer Suzanne DeWitt Hall, Jesus Christ was the first transgender man. She writes uh, recently, The current flap in conservative Christian circles about bathroom access is a bit baffling. They shout about God not making mistakes as if God only works in binaries and anything falling outside of black and white cannot be from him. But we don't have a black and white God. Creation is so full of color and variation that it's incomprehensible how we Christians, we Christians struggle to pare him down to the limited palette of our individual expectations. The worst offenders are Christians who claim to take the Bible literally. Of course, they don't actually do that. They impose their own filters on stories and phrases to fit their particular ideology. If they really did as they claim to do, they'd quickly see that Jesus must be, by their own exegetical rules, the first transgender male. Suzanne goes on to list a few examples in the Bible, citing Adam and Eve and uh, th doing some uh, hyperbolic uh, wordplay to explain towards the end of her piece... A quick look at the dictionary for the prefix trans tells us that it means across, beyond, through, and changing thoroughly, all of which are great terms for the person of Christ. He cuts across all boundaries. He is beyond our understanding. He is through all and all in all. He changes us thoroughly into new creations in his person, in his salvific actions. Jesus truly is and forever trans man. People trying to do this, making this point with any validity whatsoever or any um, seriousness whatsoever, I should say, is this week's sign the apocalypse is upon us. I... There's a one-word answer for this, Steve. You haven't done it yet this year. No. I'm setting you up. What is it? I don't know. I don't it's, it's, know. You've been, you were dying to come back and do this. I, I think you talked about it on Twitter. Saying. My name is no. no. My no. sign is yeah. no. I was. Uh, you're right. That is that. That should have been my reaction. No. Thank you. But I, I, I was. Maybe it's it's early in the new year, so uh, my my calluses haven't uh, formed yet, but. I was trying to think, are they trying to make some kind of too clever by a half point, right? That trans just means transformative and um, the gospel is transformational, which is a point we often make on our own show. And then I, I realized 
No. Um, this is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At, at no point in, in that rambling was there anything that even was close to a cohesive thought. All of us, I'm confident, are dumber for having heard it. And may God have mercy on her soul. That's a more colorful, longer version of no. So uh, no, thank you yes. for that. I mean, I, I just, that's not even a good troll. I, 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 we're at the point now that I have to write the heretics trolls for them because I could write a much better troll than that. I could write a much better troll than that. But now, see, <laughs> you know what they can't handle? We're actually fighting this battle the right way, I've noticed. We don't accept the premise of their language at all. We just laugh at them. We just laugh at them. We don't accept the premise of their language at all. Unlike how we've accepted their premise on abortion language and even now on the gay marriage issue. But on this issue, we have not accepted their premise at all. And we have forced them to say dumb things like this. That's how you win an argument. You're listening to Steve Dace. Class, meet your worst nightmare. I'm having these dreams, but I'm scared. Steve Dace. All right, back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. All right, let's get to a little Feedback Friday. And uh, we, we aren't as backlogged on feedback as we typically are. We'll be back for a few days short week, but still some interesting notes that uh, we want to respond to. So if you want to give us your feedback and you'd like to see us uh, maybe uh, get back to you and your feedback here on the air, steve at stevedace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Day Show. Uh, John Mara writes a rather long email that has a lot of good information. But if I could sum it up, John would like us to cover more theology on the show, which I think you guys would like us to see us do Mm -hmm. as well. But John specifically wants to see us cover more eschatology on the show. Oh, I might have to tap out. See, I mean, there are some people I realize that um, don't exactly take left behind as canon, which it is. So I I just think... (laughs) If we, I'm tapping if, out harder now. If we, if we stray away from those left behind <laughs> this is where books. This is where Luther and Erasmus are going to agree. And they're going to gang up on Tim LaHaye over <laughs> y- y- On young Tim LaHaye over here. Why are you Definitely. guys laughing? I mean, this is what? exactly how it's going. I mean, it's going to center around some sort of pilot and also a sort of reporter for CNN. Um, what you just heard... <laughs> <laughs> John is – and I, I'm glad we give you the, gave you this little exhibition, so we didn't want to be dismissive. But, but no, uh, there are some aspects of theology, and I wouldn't say we won't ever cover eschatology. We've – you know, uh, Billy Hallowell, who was just on our show uh, this week, um, uh, wrote a book about the various eschatological views earlier this year, and we had him come on and talk about it. Um, but I, when it comes to eschatology, my, my experience has been this is one of those things that just makes people dumb. I mean, they just... And even if you want to talk about... You're in the weeds immediately. It's yes. not like there's a Reader's Digest version. You're just yes. in deep. Yeah, I mean, if there's if there was something... You know, I, 
theology in general, I have to be careful talking about even on my Facebook wall because I've 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 seen believers get far nastier talking about that with one another than even politics. And sometimes I've looked at that and thought, boy, if I was an unbeliever and I saw y'all relating to each other on the stuff you supposedly agree on in such a fashion, you know, you, you just gave me another excuse not to show up on Sunday morning, right? So, um, but our culture is in a state now where we simply, as we we're ta- we're debating genders and bathrooms, we're we're debating things of a fundamentally existential level. So our culture is not in a position now that that we can we have an excuse not to bring theology into the picture because we are really at the men. This is a football stage of culture regeneration now, right? We got to, we got to begin with men. There's a God and women. There's a God. Our rights come from it. It's just, usually it's just the three of us here, guys, Kim, so don't take offense. Uh, women and men, there is a God. Our rights come from him, right? So if, if, if you live in a society that you're trying to rebuild the walls for, and one of its chief premises is that our rights come from God, then we need to establish what, first of all, there is a God. There is a God. Then we have to figure out, well, what does he, she, or it, you know, who, who is he, she, or it? And then what does he, she, it, or they want from us and demand of us, right? Those are things previous generations, even if people didn't obey them in their private lives or live up to them in their personal lives, on a, on a collective level, culturally did not have to define or defend. In our culture, in our era, we do. So we don't have the luxury, in my view, of having these debates anymore outside of a theological prism. But when we get into eschatology, and for those of you that don't know, eschatology just means a study of the end times. How does history culminate at the end? How does God bring history to a head? That's what it means. There's just... It just makes people nuts, man. I've literally had color-coded rapture chart guy come up to me in airports. I mean, I'm not making this stuff up. There is just something about it. And it's and it's not unique to one particular eschatological view. You know, I I know the 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 preterist people like to make fun of the premillennial people. See, you lost our. You said one sentence. Everybody's. Gone I know because I know I, I know I know. You know, and 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 the premillennial people have a lot of things that you can make fun of them about. Frankly, like one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in my life is the Temple Mount Fund. There is literally a website where you, have you know have you heard of this oh, before, yeah. Aaron? Yeah, yep. of course you have. You can literally go online and donate to have the Jews return to the Temple Mount in order to begin the premillennial countdown clock for Jesus' return. As if God was sitting there in heaven and thinking, "I have no means whatsoever <laughs> by which to bring my people back to my temple to worship me, unless you let them do an automatic withdrawal from your debit card at five bucks a month." Come on, people! Come on! All right, he can raise the dead to life, speak the cosmos into existence. But if you don't donate to the Temple Fund online, the whole thing is off. Think. (laughs) Right? But those preterist people can get nuts, too. You know, preterism is the idea that all all of the uh, apocalyptic events in the Bible that are forecasted already took place. Most of them culminating in 70 AD. That's what the preterist, that's a general definition of preterism. And some people are partial preterist and half preterist. And already I want to shoot myself for even going here. All right. But now you can see why we don't do this. And see, all right. It, the thing that always gets me about this as well is that uh, the, these conversations are interesting. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, it doesn't make Christ's work on the cross any less done. 
It doesn't make our salvation any less, whether or not you're a premillennial or amillennial, whatever you want to say. So it just it it is an interesting conversation. I think effort sometimes just the effort of understanding uh, eschatological things is good and healthy. But uh, it doesn't really to me it doesn't change uh, my salvation. Are you sure, Aaron? Have you asked Harold Camping about that? No, I haven't. No, I'm not sure. I'm sorry. That about was that. fun, wasn't it? A couple years back. <laughs> Yeah, he's the guy that uh, predicted this was going to be the year the world ended, and uh, multiple that times was, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, multiple times, and it's uh, it's still going. He's the he's see a lot of this. There was a there's a famous story from the 19th century called the Millerites. You guys ever heard of the Millerites? And they were this one of the early clans that really bought into uh, Darbyism or what we call today premillennial oh, yeah. dispensational mm-hmm. eschatology. All right, and. Um, from the old Plymouth Brethren in the 19th century, and they really bought into this. And so they had done the math and everything else, and they were so convinced that this was when Jesus was going to come back. They they owned this town. It was their settlement. They sold all their property and went out there and waited to be raptured. That was like 200 years ago. Listening to Steve Dace. The Power of Principles, Steve Dace. All right, we've come to the end of tonight's show. Now we're going to be down a voice next week. Because for some odd reason, I agreed to let Aaron take a week of vacation after we just took a couple of weeks off at the end of the year, even though he didn't get all that time off, but he got several days. I didn't believe him when he reminded me he was getting next week off, and then he went back and pulled the email where I did approve of this. So <laughs> the joke's on me. So so what is so important that immediately after being gone for the better part of two weeks for the holidays, you come to me like the millennial slacker you are. Mm-hmm. And request early in the new year a full week of vacation in the dead of January. What is happening? Harry Potter world. I'm sorry? (laughs) Harry Potter uh, world. The wizarding world of Harry Potter. Are you going alone? Nope. Going with a bunch of people, actually. My sister and brother-in-law and some of their friends and one of my friends. It's only open right now? Wow. Yeah. Oh, that is true, really? No. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's, uh, it's just that it's January. And it's Iowa, and it's like eight degrees outside right now. And the Wizarding World of Harry Potter is in Florida, where it's not eight degrees. So that's kind of the impetus for doing this I now. Have a, a great time! I'm going to buy my first wand. I might even go to Ollivander's and see if they do the. Is whole this the one at Universal role. Studios? Yeah, I was there last year. Is it good? I it's, think we might spend a day at, it, uh, at Universal. It, it uh, it's phenomenal. Is it? I mean, it, you do feel like you were at Hogwarts. Really? It, I mean, I, we the kids got their wands at Ollivander's. Really? They drank butter beer. It it is incredible. I, I, it is. I'm looking forward um, to it. You will you will have a blast. There's two major rides there. Okay, the the one at the Gringotts Bank. Mm-hmm. That's the new one. All right, but the better one is the old one. So the the ride at the Gringotts Bank is pretty good. But the one where you are literally in the suspension seats. The one in Hogwarts. Yes, where you ride through Hogwarts. Yeah, my sister. That, that's going to blow your mind. My sister's been there before, and she said uh, she that's said That's one of the best amazing. rides I've ever been on, and I've been to like every amusement park in America that matters, almost all of them. Mm-hmm. That's one of the best rides I've ever been on, Interesting. is that one. 
All right. Interesting. Now, I would highly recommend doing Universal Studios while you're down there. Mm-hmm. And you have to do the Spider-Man ride. That's what my sister said, too. And the Spider-Man ride is also one of the best rides I've ever been on. And, and you will feel like you are in the middle of a live comic book. Really? Yeah. I mean, we all still, all five of us did that together, and we all still rave about it. Hmm. So make sure, you know, the big line will be for the Gringotts ride, because that's the new one. Mm-hmm. But the, Her- the Hogwarts ride is, is, is next level stuff. That's otherworldly. And make sure you do the Spider-Man ride. Make gotcha. sure you do that. Gotcha. I'll hit it all. The fire-breathing dragon at Gringotts, though, so cool. Yeah, I agree. Actually, I think the the line, the the, I think the staging to get into the ride is more impressive than the ride. The Hogwarts ride, though. Hey, Todd, would you agree with me oh, on this? Absolutely. Yeah, did it, it twice. Unbelievable. Cool. So have a good time, and don't ever ask me of this again. Okay, you got it. All right. You got it. Uh, don't ever ask me for a, a vacation immediately after we come back ever again. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody have a great weekend. We'll see you on Monday. Until then, John 317. You're listening to Steve Dace.